We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. It's the True Faith Newcastle United podcast. It's a special podcast this week. We have a look back at season 1992-1993 with True Faith regular Mark Corby and George Cogan, friend of the show and from The Athletic. And George, what a season. Long have you said, according to Mark, that this is your (laughs) favourite season supporting Newcastle United all the way back in 1992-1993. Can you tell us to kick the show off why that is? 92, 93, and 93, 94, I would say. Um, just, well, I'll tell you what, I'm going to read something from Kevin Keegan's first autobiography, if I may. I was about to embark on the most exciting year Newcastle will ever have. Even if they go on to win the championship and the European Cup, that 92, 93 season will be hard to top. It was also new to everyone that anything that followed was never as exciting, not even when we nearly won the championship. It was the season I will never forget. So, personally and professionally, it had a massive impact on my life. But it was also to do with the football that was played. But it was the feeling, I mean, the thing I love about it, and I love the fact that we're doing this now, 30 years on, because I think for the maybe for the first time, those feelings are back again, certainly in some respects. That sense that Newcastle has a boundless ambition, that massive buzz around the city and the stadium on a match day, that feeling that anything is possible, that feeling that you're being carried away by it, the feeling that you're part of something that's bigger than you um, is just so kind of profoundly special. The difference, I would argue, back then in 92-93 was that the football, you know, we haven't quite had that on, on the, in the football sense yet in, in 2022. We've had an amazing recovery but the football was like something I've never seen before in my life and I can't imagine I'll see ever again. And of course, as Keegan says in that thing, it was brand new. The club was coming from a position um, where the future was engraved out and they went on and challenged, as we all know, at the top of the of the Premier League. And this was the season that got them there. It was it was incredible. Mark, same question, where does or does where does ninety two, ninety three rank for you and why? Well, me and George have got something in common straight away because 92 to 94 is without a shadow of a doubt my most enjoyable time supporting Newcastle. Um, you know, we've, we've touched on you know the, the Champions League, the Bobby Robson era, all fantastic. But I think it may be of a sort of a coming of age period for me, um, obsessed with Newcastle United. Every single penny I got went on Newcastle United, be it the match, be it a programme, be it a mag, uh, a fanzine, uh, away games, 
you know, it was just a, a pure bandwagon. And um, I'm sure we'll, we'll touch on Keegan in greater detail, but when he arrived, it that was it. You, you knew you, ha- you were part of something special. And even though we were fighting relegation to the old third division at the time, you just knew you had to be a part of that. And if you didn't want to be a part of that, you were taking a risk to not to go along with it because we brought brought into uh, brought into Kevin Keegan his philosophy, his style, his ideas from day one. And as George said, it was just an absolute joy to be a, be a part of it to, to witness it. Um, you know, Keegan did make some mistakes along the way, but you know, when you look back overall, it was just just utter, utter joy and uh, a great time to be a what a teenager, still a teenager then, um, but. As I say, that that two-year period, I can't dispute what George has said there. Um, it was une- un- you know, there was no expectation, um, and the fact that by the end of that, that two-year period, we, we went from, you know, risk of bankruptcy and uh, third division football to qualifying for Europe, and that was it. We did. He said we were going to take off, and we did. Can we just set the scene then uh, from the football team? What happened at the end of the previous season? Just for our listeners who who might not have been around then or. Or, or new to the club? Um, yeah, so the back end of 1992, Keegan came in in February um, and he had 16 games to basically save us from, well, for me, it was disaster. Relegation, would have lost all the star players. Um, he came up with a contingency plan of signing the likes of Peter Garland and Darren McDonough, pretty much just journeymen, really, um, as a contingency plan in case we had to sell the likes of Peacock, uh, Kelly, Kevin Scott, who was still a, a major asset then. Um, but somehow, you know, for two games to go, we managed to turn it around and we did it. And uh, again, I've I've touched on game support Newcastle. The last two to three games, Derby away, Pompey home, and Leicester away. But just I was there for three. And if you could bottle them three games and just say to people, look, just experience that. That's what support Newcastle United is all about. And that was, you know, as I said before, coming of age and introduction to a bit of everything. You know, violence. Um, the team and the the supporters coming together very much like what George said before, a bit like today. It's it seems to be happening again. Um, but you know, th- there was uncertainty about Keegan whether he was going to stay because his contract was up for for them sixteen games. Um, he walked he walked away twice. He walked away twice. He, yeah. walk, he walked away not long after getting the job when because um, he'd been told to be uh, a million quid to spend and um, <clears throat> that didn't turn up. Or I think Sir John Hall had made promises on behalf of the directors that the other directors couldn't keep, so he walked away and was persuaded back. And then it was he took over on a consultancy basis. I think that was the sort of title. And um he didn't sign the he didn't sign the new contract because um this was very much the old board, but he was um basically told he did have to sell his top players. And at, at one at one point, so he'd asked, you know, he'd asked Sir John, "What happens if Newcastle go down?" And Sir John had said, "We go out of business." Now, whether that would have been the case or not, it certainly felt like it. Again, there were similarities. There, there was to now in the sense that there was that existential stuff going on, except it was worse because earlier in that season, Newcastle had a crowd of thirteen thousand for one of, the, one of the matches. The season before, it had gone down to ten thousand for, for for one of the matches. And um, it wasn't a fun thing to do. And um, there'd been year, year upon year of kind of boardroom strife. And it wasn't really until the summer that that got sorted out. And, um, and Keegan agreed to, to stay. Um, so it was, a, it, you know, staying up. He, he came in, the first thing he did, fumigate the training ground. He'd set a tone. 
they had a brilliant start and then results tailed off. And as you say, it wasn't until the sort of real drama at the end of the season before that they that they stayed up. And then you thought, right, now we've got a, ch- you know, now we have a chance. Um, and it just clicked. Can you set the scene then, George? It is August 1992. What is a, a young George Colkin doing with his life? So, <clears throat> I'll have to kind of peer back through a, through you know the fuzz of <laughs> beer uh, and terrible me- terrible memory. So, I'd been away at university in Hull, which was the, um, certainly the shittest three years of my life. I don't mind saying that. And I came back came back home, no idea what to do. I'm from Durham. I'm a Durham lad, so I'd always always lived lived around Durham. Um, my kind of family had moved away. My mum had moved away, so I was kind of on my own. And I moved to Newcastle for the first for the first time with my uh, with with my girl with my girlfriend at the time. Um, and I didn't know what I wanted to do. There were writers in my family, but I didn't know that that was what I you know was was what, what I was going to do. Uh, and I was unemployed. I was unemployed for that year. So the first thing I wanted to do was was um, get back to watching Newcastle. And uh, I ended up watching. Uh, I mean, I didn't have a lot of money. But I ended up watching every every home game that season, including in the uh, Anglo-Italian Cup, I think it was. Um, and it was just an astonishing. It was just an. It was just astonishing from the start. And professionally, it had a profound uh, impact on me because I. I think you know halfway through it was like I was I was bursting with stuff that I wanted to talk about. I wanted to write, and um, I've kind of brought <laughs> brought along some of. Well, it was. The, the the stuff I was first published in, which was a fanzine, it was the mag, and you know this is why I I will always do and always be grateful and very happy to do stuff with True Faith because I'm a fanzine writer. That's why I am. I mean that's my background. I'm from the fanzine generation, and um, it was, you know, it was it was it was actually going down to Maiden Castle to watch the team train that made me first want to write something, and um, yeah, that was it. That was it for me. It was just, but being yeah. Being part of the city in that in that year in particular was it's very difficult to describe, but everything led up to the weekend. It was that old cliche. I was desperate. You were desperate to have that first drink at the weekend. Um, there was also fear, not fear about what what might happen on the Saturday, but the fear of not getting in. Um, and so, certainly for the early games, I was getting outside the ground with my mate ninety minutes before kickoff to queue up. Very different stadium back then. I, in my own head, it was started off at the Gallagate doing that, and then going around to the paddocks. But from what I've written, looking back at what I've written, it looked like it was the other way around. But I can't remember. It looked like I ended up in the in the Gallagate. But by the end, I had to get a part season ticket just to be sure, uh, just to be sure to to see the matches. You were petrified about not getting in. Grimsby. One of the great, um, not one of the great games. The, sorry, the um, I think it was the twelfth game that season, which they actually lost. They won eleven in, in a row. Incredible. There were thousands of people locked outside, and it was you know it was astonishing. And I only got in because I was there early. Mark, you've talked before on podcasts about ninety two, ninety three, perhaps being the last season when anyone in the city could go, both for accessibility in terms of not having to have a ticket, but also the price. Is that the case? Am I remembering correctly? No, you're right, Alex. Um, you know, w- w- you've got to hope, without flipping it too much into the, the current status, but you want to hope that 
we don't repeat what happened back then. Uh, John Hall did say there was going to be a, a price for every fan. No one was going to be locked out, and unfortunately, that didn't happen. You know, a lot of genuine supporters who had, you know, watched the shite for years, the relegations, you know, losing uh, what will be as Gascoigne. They were locked out. They couldn't afford it. And as George mentioned before, you had to buy a season ticket or a part season ticket to guarantee you would get in. Um, similar story to me. Uh, I was a Gallagher lad, Gallagher corner. Um, and we got up there a little bit too late. The, the gates were locked at something like half past one against, oh. against I think it was Tramia Rovers first. And that was that was a sign. Well, hang on, we're not we're hitting capacity most games, but to be locked out, the turnstiles are shut. What do we do? Paddocks. Ah, we don't want to go in the paddocks. And at that time, you thought people who go in the paddocks were old. That's that was the mentality you had. Let's go in the Leeds as next away fans. We just managed to get in. But as George said, you were in the ground an hour and a half before kickoff, packed in like sardines, waiting for the game, and that was the buzz. And then by the know, time by the time the game started, your legs would be knackered just from standing <laughs> still, either outside. Yeah. Or, or inside, and by you know by full time, you could barely walk because you'd been still. And you your, couldn't move inside the actual ground, and your voice was gone as well because the, the pre-match build-up wasn't just turning up 10, 15 minutes as it is now for the flags. You know, God forbid, we don't go back the days when you you crawl in at five past because you you don't want to go in. But back then, the, they were singing every player's name when they were coming out to warm up, yeah. and uh, you know there was a little bit banter between the Gallagher end and the the, uh, the sorry the corner and the scoreboard. Um, but yeah, go, going back to your point, um, yeah, you did see a, a change there. Um, without fast-forwarding too much, I always remember when we got to the Premier League and Keegan was interviewed on Football Focus. First game of the season, Tottenham at home. And it was a big... What's the right word? It was just a, a lot of you know, noise about Newcastle being in the top flight again, where we deserve to be. You know, the season ticket... The ground was full of season ticket holders and Keegan was interviewed pitch side before the game. Never forget it. Um, and they were t- talking about the lockout season ticket holders only and Keegan went well John Hall would sell my seat in the dugout if he could <laughs> and he was true because years later we had the unfortunate incident with the bond scheme and the, the save our seats the platinum club and things like that but getting ahead of ourselves um, but it's, you're certainly right Alex and that, that, that for me was a change in probably the, the personnel who was going it wasn't just you walk in you know leaving the pub at 5-3 to three from the strawberry and, and popping in um, you had to get there early or you had to go and get a ticket and ultimately that's what the likes of me and George had to do. Um, you know, I was fortunate that a friend a friend of uh, mine's mother paid for mine and my mother paid for my brother's because she couldn't afford them both. It was a big outlay. Um, but yeah, it, it definitely changed. But, you know, when you look back, it's uh, it was a change for a positive reason for a change. Take us to that summer then, Mark. Um, you know, these days the transfer market is all-consuming. Uh, what was it like back then? Was, was, was it uh, the kind of summer that set fans... Pulses racing because of the type of signings, or was it was it the popular phrase used today in 2022? Evolution, not revolution. <laughs> I, I tell you what, the, the biggest thing I remember is um, being. I was going on a school holiday to France, and um, I remember coming up with my mother to get some holiday clothes, as you do, new sh- shorts, tops, etc. And where the gate is now, there used to be a sports shop, but the name fails me. Um, next to the May, there was a Mayfair bar club. Uh, where they used to put bands on, and then there was a couple of sports shops, and I remember going in there, and how you heard the news was the pink, or the Chronicle headline when yeah. you walked through Newcastle, and I walked out, and someone was selling the pink, and I picked up a copy, and uh, it had venison signs. Now, for me, that was a huge statement, because Barry Venison was, you know, a successful player in a brilliant Liverpool side in the, in the late 80s, early 90s, 
And, uh, you know, rumour has it, just by educating, swatting up on Venice, and I, I found out that he, he turned down a new contract and a guaranteed testimonial to come and play for Kevin Keegan. Now, obviously, as a 14, 15-year-old at the time, you didn't know that. You just knew that we had signed a, a, a top-quality, uh, top-flight player. But the big one for me um, was Bracewell. Um, Paul Bracewell, Sunderland's captain. Um, you know, he, he, he was an England player. He, with, apart from injuries, he could have been top, top class. You know, he could have been in England regular for years. And ironically, it was Billy Whitehurst who, who did him up uh, at St. James' Park in the game between Newcastle and Everton. But that was a huge statement. A little bit of a piss take out of the back ones. We've took your best player. Um, you know, and it took a while for Bracewell to really get going at Newcastle, apart from his debut, of Scored in his first goal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, um, but what, what a player he turned out to be. And then when you look at John Beresford as well, um, you know, the feel a medical at Liverpool and Keegan apparently phoned him up and says, don't worry, you'll not feel a medical here. <laughs> Which says something good about Keegan, but also something bad about Newcastle's, uh, you know, medical. But um, you, you, you took it in your stride. You didn't know what was coming. I mean, God forbid now, I try and switch off from Twitter because you... There's that many rumours. You just want hard facts, don't you? You want to wake up and go, we've signed Trippier, we've signed Byrne. You, you just want that. Um, but crazy, you, you couldn't help but be excited by it because every single player we were buying, similar to January, was an improvement of, on what we had. So even though they didn't set the world alight, you knew that there were better players and it was a, it was a statement of intent, as the cliche goes. And I remember being I remember being chuffed to bits that Kevin Scott stayed. I remember yeah. the Chronicle that day, you know, and... Not certainly not kind of comparing him to um, to you know to, to sort of past brilliant players that have been at Newcastle and been sold on, but that felt important to me that that he was staying. And of course, they'd had that they'd had the moment earlier when Keegan had you know had said he was leaving because the threat was that players like Peacock or Kelly would be sold. And um, you know, with the new players coming in, there was definitely something to sort of build on there. I was going to say about Kevin Scott, the joke I always used to t- tell was that. I thought that his name was Scotty Man um, <laughs> to start with because people shout Scotty Man because <laughs> he did have a he did have a mistake in him. But I, you know, it was that felt like a that felt like a really important moment. And so Newcastle had been a selling club, and now they were buying. Yeah, you know, the first time in a long time they were buying. Kevin Keegan's the manager, and we've talked about what he did at the end of the previous season. George, a couple of questions for you. First of all. Um, had you seen Keegan as a player? Was that a little bit before your time? Or were no, you? I'd seen him as a player, yeah. Him as a player. yeah. And so you were kind of fully aware, as Mark, you said you were 14, 15, we, you were both fully aware of his role in f- football in England, in Europe, and just how big a name he was at Newcastle. Did you both feel Oh, that? Uh, 100%, yeah, no, astonishing. Um, and when he, I was away when he came back to be manager, I was at, I was at college, um, but even that kind of one step re- removed... You just felt the impact, um, and there was just you know there was just that sort of almost tele- telepathy there between him and the city and the club and the and the fans, and um, just on the wavelength knew exactly what the team was about, knew exactly what the club should stand for and could stand for, and saw it, and um, you know that sort of you know, that uh, there is that sort of imagery of him being a kind of Pied Piper leading the club, but you would, you would have done anything for Keegan. And he, 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 you know, we've talked a lot about hope in the past few years at Newcastle, the lack of hope until the takeover. He gave Newcastle hope and, you know, he, he presented the best vision of Newcastle. And I think that was the kind of really exciting thing. Um, you know, obviously his 
background as a player was astonishing. The stuff he did coming to Newcastle as a player the first time, you know, was you'll you'll never get a bigger shock than that. Um, But it it always had a special place in his own kind of heart and 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 head, and he just always felt he always had that sense of what the club could be, and it became that club. And I, I remember. One of one of his, I don't know if it was his first set of program notes that season, but it was certainly one of them. And he said, "Our aim has to be promotion to the to the Premier League." And it's like, what? <laughs> but I mean, within a game, two games, three games, we were believing it because the team was winning. And I don't, you know, there's never been there's never been someone more in tune with the club that, than he was. And um, you know, again, this takes us beyond this season, but. Um, you know the way he did it was just was just astonishing to play the style of football that they did. Yeah, Mark, eleven wins from the first eleven games. Do you want to just talk the listeners through a little bit what was that, that was like to experience? Phenomenal. I mean, as you know, we did the podcast with uh, David Kelly the other week, and what a joy to hear his his own memories. And you know, you you've got you've got these sort of thoughts in your head about how you expect the players to be, and everything he said was exactly how you want them to be. They were in touch with. With the supporters, they were in touch with the city. The, you know, the, those were the days where you could just go to them in the in the car park at uh, the old well, the old Millburn reception, and ask them for tickets. And if we get your tickets, <laughs> so we'll get you a ticket. It, it was as simple as that. And um, but the first eleven games, you know, obviously Paul Bracewell scream on the opening minutes against Southend, um, and we're absolutely battered on that day, but only one three two, which was probably a sign of. Keegan's philosophy, you know, starting from the front, you know, from attack and defend from attack, really. But uh, the, the biggest one for me, we had some cracking wins. I mean, we were back at Bristol City. I remember that one, 5-0 um, in the in the pissing down rain. You had, um, we took around about 10,000 at Peterborough for an away game. Wow. What was 15,000? Um, is, is that the the famous clip on Twitter? It is. is. That, that game, is it? Wow. The, I thought, like, looking at the footage, I thought that was from, like, the early 80s, but... Yeah. It's, it's uh, <laughs> a, a clip I got a hold of, which I was late to get, and You've, you've got to put it up. It was just that was an experience because obviously, bear in mind as well, um, drifting a little bit here. But Gallagher and Lees has had no roofs, but that was the singing sections. But by the end of this, well, by the, by the time the season developed, the whole ground was singing, so you had you had noise, proper noise for the probably for my experience for the first time. Um, but yeah, the, the 11 wins, uh, we went to Derby, uh, second game of the season, they they had spent hugely on the likes of Paul Kitson, Gabby Dini, uh, Mark Pembridge, top quality players. They were going for a promotion under Arthur Cox and we went down there and beat them 2-1. A couple of games earlier in the previous season, we got battered 4-1 with three cent off. So it was it was like, okay, we're, we're going to go somewhere. Yeah, but just going back to David Kelly, obviously he uh, had a, a horror time at West Ham. And I asked him the question, you know, there was a big uh, article in the in the local press, I think it was the, the Chronicle, uh, how Kelly was desperate to score against West Ham, his former team. And he did. And the celebration, if you if you look back at the footage, the Gallagher end, it's you're packed in like sardines, but the everyone just jumps a little bit like Keegan's debut. You, you can't move, but the celebration's just glorious. And one of my memories is we were in the Gallagher corner and uh, we jumped over the, the wall, sort of a, a little wall to keep you off the pitch, really. But we jumped on and jumped on the pitch. You could do that then. You could celebrate with the players. And uh, I reminded David of that off, off air, and he was like, yeah, I remember that. He said, I had to push us back in before he's got nicked. It's sort of, you know what I mean? <laughs> It, uh, on the Gallagher there, I mean, it wasn't like the you know safe standing we have now. There was yeah. nothing to stop you being pushed down. Yeah. I mean, there were barriers every now and again, but there was nothing to stop you being. Mm. It was like a swell. It was like a tide. Yeah. So if anything ever happened, there was this move forward and then this move back and this gradual move back. And I remember, I'm I'm sure it was that season. 
you know, the remote, you say it all crammed together, but you crammed together for 90 minutes before yeah. kickoff. There was me and my mate, someone threw up on the back of our Ugh. trousers, turning around, hear it, seeing this trickle <laughs> between your feet and looking back, and there was this old fella, and he was pissing into one of those little Max Packs coffee cups. And it's like, what the fuck yeah. are you pissing into that? You may as well just piss on the ground. Yeah. The coffee cup is serving no purpose there. And, you know, but, and, and, People so pissed, but they're being kept on their feet because you're all squashed <laughs> together like that. You're held up, um, but you're also all in. It, you were also all in it together, and what you were seeing on the pitch was so incredible that you would put up with <laughs> put up with all that stuff. Um, and it wasn't. I don't know. I mean, I my memory of it, the way I feel about it now. I think that one of the reasons you know, the, the shape of the team changed when Ferdinand arrived, and Ferdinand was incredible. I loved watching him, but I think to use Keegan's phrase, they had to feed feed the beast or whatever like that because he was so dominant aerially and stuff like that. 92, 93, it was all about these little triangles. It was about these little passing triangles and they passed the ball so quickly. Everybody was good in possession. And I suppose if I think back to the sort of championship, most recent championship seasons for Newcastle, it was all about, a lot of it was about overwhelming teams. But it was about the sort of the, I mean, overwhelming them with power, I suppose is what I mean. But it was a grind. This wasn't a grind. It was the opposite of a grind. It was adventure. It was adventure all the way through, and um, they were. It was trickery. It was. It was little passing moves. And again, it's not that Newcastle had been terrible before then, because under our dealers there was a commitment to play. You know, there was the 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 young kids who came through, people like Watson and Clark and Howie and all the rest of it. They were good footballers, but. Um, this was something else. This was this was playing football from the gods, but winning at the same time. And um, I think that's the thing that I always remember. And then, of course, when Cole comes in later on in the season, you've then got, um, you know, that other outlet and a, a, a goal-scoring machine. I loved Peacock and I loved Kelly. I loved the way they play, but, you know, then Cole takes it forward another, another step. I think... Um the highlights for me as well. I mean, I mentioned a couple there, but the, the victories at, at uh, Middlesbrough, the Coca-Cola Cup, then we're a Premier League side, um, far better than us. We had an awful record against Middlesbrough at the time, but we went there in the second leg um, after a nil-nil draw, I think, and uh, again, we took about 8,000 down and um, we, we absolutely destroyed them, 3-1. Um, that was that was a huge statement. And then I think it was a week, might have been 10 days later, we went to Roker Park and, and beat Sunderland on their patch, first time since... 56, something like that. Oh. And uh, yeah, and, and, and you know, it, it wasn't just a case of we're beating the likes of Peter Brower and Tramier, etc. We were going to beat our local rivals as well. So that just took it to a, a totally, totally different level. And obviously you mentioned the 11 wins out of 11. You know, the, the Sunderland game was the, the one where, you know, the, the, they were adamant. Oh, we're going to destroy your record. All the Southern supporters were telling me. We was being brought up in, in Jarrow and Hebbard and South Shields. We're going to beat you. We're going to beat you. They got beat six and off West Ham on the telly the week before. <laughs> they were never going to beat us, but they nearly they nearly stopped the winning. But Liam O'Brien's goal, I mean, pff, that's another podcast in its own. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, away games, George. Were you were you were you at any away games across the season? Or were you no, just, just at home. No, I couldn't I couldn't afford it. Um, so, but I was glued to the radio, and that was the other thing. You know, I'd, Saturdays were still still revolved around still still revolved around the match, and it was listening. Yeah, I was listening to it um, because I think I think it was so compelling. Um, that you had to still be part of it, but no away games weren't sadly weren't weren't sort of on my agenda that season. They were for you, Martin. I imagine I had I was hooked by then. 
as I said before, you know, I, I ended up getting a, uh, I did a milk round for a while, getting up at three o'clock in the morning, and probably about eight pound a week or something. It was ridiculous. <laughs> then it was like, all right, I can't go to bed that early anymore. I'm falling asleep at school. Let's get a paper around. Let's be normal. Get a paper around. Probably about ten pound a week. That paid for me away games. I used to go with the old uh, Haymarket branch, Armstrong Galley. Never forget the the, the name of the coaches. Um, it's not there anymore. It's it, it's interesting because we're reminiscing, but a lot of things have gone now, you know. But uh, the the Haymarket supporters uh, branch, uh, we used to leave from there. Uh, I went to Derby. Um, that was fantastic. Um, but I was I was absolutely hooked. And again, I touched on before about a bandwagon. You know, we bought into what Kevin Keegan was talking about, and you knew that every away game you, you had to come to the ground and, and basically wag school in the morning to come and get a ticket. There's none of this online business. You, you, no. had, to, you had to come up, not, you know, That's not it, get a ticket yeah. off at nine o'clock. Get a ticket, queue up, get a ticket, and hopefully you join the queue at the right time to get one. But the stadium, the stadium here was different as well. You know, the actual makeup of the Gallagher end. You had the turnstiles and you had that like scrubland, didn't you? Yeah. Leading up the, I can't even sort of describe that. I can't even. I find it difficult to picture that in my head but it was like this that you walked upstairs but you had scrubland yeah around you because it was just a big mound of concrete wasn't it it was a mound of concrete with trees bushes and all sorts and yeah. a rumor has it that uh, some people who were homeless used to get into the game and then hide in the bushes because they had nowhere to go that that's yeah there is stories doing the rounds about that but the but the i mean and it 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 didn't necessarily always it wasn't always a, a positive but the the directors Post post takeover back then un- did understand what they had going for them because the ground was sold out every week yeah. and so they very quickly started moving to 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 redevelop. Um, but no, physically the whole place the whole place was. I mean, I've got little things that stick in my head. I can't remember which game it was. But it was it was second half of the season. Going to, going to the pub. I I went to the fourth hotel. Um, post match usually usually with my mate and um, I just remember being there chattering away about the game, slamming my pint down on one of those old cast iron radiators at the exact minute that my mate was leaning forward and he he just stopped and because uh, my pint glass shattered into a million pieces and he just stopped and he said, phone an ambulance. It was like, what? No, phone an ambulance. What do you mean? I've, I've swallowed glass. As, so, and... Um, I started laughing. It's like I'm not going to, I'm not going to phone an ambulance. You're perfectly fine. <laughs> so no, I've swallowed a bit of glass there, and that's going to tear my esophagus. <laughs> it's going to tear my. It's, it's, sorry, it's not funny. It is funny. Um, <laughs> but uh, anyway, so I, like, I completely refused to phone him an ambulance. But anyway, he was serious, serious, and we stayed there. So we were like locked in this. Um, we were locked in this sort of argument, and I'm so he agreed to very gingerly move the pub. Uh, sorry, moved from the pub and there was an ambulance by the s- central station. So we got in this ambulance and then I sat with him um, for two hours. He refused to move. He just wouldn't move because he was certain that if he moved, his insides were going to get torn apart. Anyway, Saturday night, poor fucking doctors. Um, they finally look at him and said, well, we don't know if you swallowed a bit of glass or not, but just eat loads of mashed potatoes and expect a gritty stool in a couple of weeks. And, it was like, and it's like things like this sick in my head. Yeah. But I, I mean, the other thing, the other side of the of the football club was that the training ground was open. And so I was doing that as well. So I didn't go to, I didn't go to away games, but I did go to the training ground. And because that was like getting your football fix during those off weeks or, and you could just go down. And there was that, you know, so you go down to start with, there would be, a, you know, a couple hundred people there maybe, but you're 
by the pitch. Keegan opened the whole club out. Um, and there they were, just playing playing football, occasionally punching each other. I remember I remember Clarkey, uh, it was a bad tackle. Clarkey turned around, whipped around, punched Benny Christensen in the face. And you know, wasn't wow. wasn't all over the wasn't all over the yeah. papers, but you were right close. And then the, you know, the longer that went on, the bigger the crowds got to the point that there were burger vans and ice cream vans <laughs> coming down there. And it would take it would take the players if they braved the crowds after a training session. It would take them take them ages and ages to get through them. There were so many people there. So you had this whole you know the the match day feeling was actually there not just at the weekend, it was there during the week as well because you could just go and you could just go and watch them train. Yeah, I have to remind listeners at the minute the stuff we're talking about, it is the first division, the championship. This isn't, you know, top of the Premier League or anything like that. I mean it's when people talk about passion for football in the northeast and Newcastle in particular, I think this stuff that you guys are describing is an excellent example of that because this is, you know, there's some very good footballers here. I'm going to talk about some more very good footballers in the second who played this season but George, you were going down, I imagine, on a Tuesday morning or a Wednesday afternoon to go and watch lads train. And that might sound great to people at the minute, but I personally couldn't, you know, it just seems it just seems like a ridiculous concept that a football team would watch let, let the public watch them train for, for the week up ahead. Marcelo Bielsa's had to send loads of spies to Derby County <laughs> yeah, or yeah. he went to do the same. But it just it does just sound incredible. Mark, I have to ask you before we move on, how did you hospitalise anyone that season? Uh, no, <laughs> I'm probably hospital, shouldn't hospitalise myself. The amount of alcohol I drank, but uh, no, I'm, I'm I'm pleased to say no. <laughs> nice one, well, Mark. Tell us. Um, let's move on. Then let's move into the crux of the season. There's some, there's some key. You know, I will tell you what. What was your favourite game of that season? Oh, favourite. <sighs> We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. It would probably have to be... It would probably have to be... <sighs> Middlesbrough was a huge, huge statement and would had no joy against Middlesbrough over that period. 
Uh, but if I had to pick one, if I had to take one to the grave with us, it would probably be probably the Leicester. The last game. I think, um, you know, I know I know we're getting ahead of the season. I'm not going to it too much, but that just, everything everything that was supposed to go right went right that day. Um, and plus I turned, what would I, be? I would have been 15 the next day. And again, I wag school to go to the victory parade up at, uh, yeah. it was, where was it at? It was at uh, Haymarket where they, where they finished. Um, it would be Leicester, the 7-1 final game of the season. George, same question, mate. Yeah, probably, probably, probably be that game. I mean, the I have a struggle. I have, a, I've just written. I was telling you, Alex, on the way way in tonight that I've just written a whole article about um, a game. It turns out that I was at and had no memory of it as I was actually writing writing it, um, and that is that is a problem. But I do remember that. I do remember those those scenes right at the end. In my mind, they're kind of blurred into the moment when there's the open top bus. And the players at the Civic Centre and Keegan saying, you know, I was there there then. Keegan saying, tell Alex Ferguson we're coming after you. You know, that that sense. And that was just that just that sort of jubilation. But I suppose I suppose the you know, that 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 was the that was the icing. You know, that was the icing on top of the cake. Whereas the, I think those the games right at the start of the season, although I can't really differentiate them in my own head would probably be my favourite because it was that sense of having to get there that early and that sort of anticipation and just being astonished by what was happening in front of you. They were winning again and everybody just wanted to be part of it and to celebrate it. And I'm, you know, if if you do bring that back to if you bring that back to now, the lovely thing is that it's not just old twats like me having to talk about those feelings because those feelings are back again. People yeah. wanting to be you know, just desperate to be there to witness it, to be part of it somehow. Um, you know, that that was the overwhelming feeling back then. Leicester was very, very special, but, you know, because it, because you knew that that was waving goodbye to that division and then starting off, starting off on the next bit. If I can just add to that, uh, per, personal memories is obviously getting up there early because it was a huge celebration. Uh, apparently Keegan walked out at half-time against Oxford midweek because we got promoted at Grimsby, we played on the Tuesday. We played Oxford on the Thursday at home, and uh, apparently because I'd been on the drink all week, the, the players didn't perform. And apparently Keegan walked out. And Terry Max says uh, he's gone. Uh, he's been shite. Got a book your ideas. When it went two one, so by the Sunday we still had been on the drink all week. But uh, you know we had the new Asic strip, bold black and white stripes. We had the Leesers end coming up in the background. Lindisfarne played played yeah, a set yeah. on the on the Leesers, but it was. For us being kids, it was it was great because um, you took that risk that of invading the pitch before the game. That you ran up to the players. I remember shaking Steve Steve Howie and Kevin Scott's hands. Congratulations, Steve Howie. Went, what the fuck are you doing on here? I was just, just jumping on. You know, there was, you know, people just taking turns to run on the pitch. Um, but the, the our nostalgia person in me, I think the, the good thing about that is when I went home and watched because uh, it was live on ITV. Um, when I watched it back, you had um, Chris Waddle was doing the core commentary with Roger Thames and you had uh, Peter Biasley in the studio um, so a touch back to the, the the days where we were hanging our hats on individual players at this point um, then we're probably watching with probably a little bit envy we're, we're not a part of this and you could sense with Kevin Keegan in charge and Terry Mack being assistant they, they were probably looking at that and going wow they really are going places now and, and they weren't a part of it Beasley, Beasley would, would be about to be yeah. again <laughs> yeah. just yeah. 
So Newcastle win eleven in a row. Mark, was it was promotion done at this point? Looking back, no, or I, even at that tender age, you just knew um, you couldn't you couldn't take it for granted. Um, you know, we had we had some slips on the way. Um, I remember again wagon school to get a ticket for Barnsley away, and uh, George is you know reminiscing there about a, a story in, in the pub. I was still too young to go into the pubs, but we we'll still have a couple of cheeky cans on the coaches. But uh, Barnsley, we'll never forget that because um, the night before we went to a house party. I mean, the, the lads who I still go to the games with now, um, we, got, we got drunk and we had a hangover. But we were going to Barnsley the next day. And for the first time, I was thinking, I've got a hangover. This is a hangover. I, I, I can't go to Barnsley. I need to just lie in bed all day. <laughs> but we went and we got beat 1 0. Barnsley were near the bottom of the league. And we were beating everyone inside. But um, it was interesting, George was saying before um, about how it was such a joy to watch the little pockets and the diamonds and all that. But we didn't do it live on TV. We had a horrible record when the ITV picked us on the Sunday. We just couldn't win a game. Um, but yeah, I mean, going into Christmas, we were, we were miles clear, possibly 10, 11, 12 points. And then we had uh, we had that blip, didn't we, George, uh, in January, where we, we just couldn't seem to win a game. But it didn't seem to bother the supporters because FA Cup was still hugely important then. And we went on an FA Cup run. Um, but no, I, I would be a lie if I said I was 100% confident. You, you knew, you had faith in Keegan, you had faith in the players, but you being Newcastle fans, even then, you just couldn't take it for granted. Not until it was 100% done. I've just uh, picked out one of these old copies of the mag, <coughs> just to kind of make this point. It says a lot about me, I'm afraid. I mean, <laughs> and I haven't changed in this sense, because at exactly that moment where there was a bit of a wobble, I was shitting myself. <laughs> because, um, you know, it would go wrong. And, I mean, the other side of it was, even as things were good, I was shitting myself because I was already anticipating the moment when it stops being good. Um, and uh, I looked to the future, not just with hope, but also with trepidation, knowing only too well the difference between good and bad luck can teeter on a knife edge. Would promotion only le- let us in for a season-long battle to maintain our hard-won status? Da, 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 da. And so I think all, you know, I think Newcastle's impoverishedness as a, as a club, but also as a footballing entity, was so fresh then that you couldn't take any of it for granted. I think, you know, the, the, again, to, 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 to make the comparison between then and now, suddenly, you know, Newcastle's takeover now is transformative because of the wealth of the ownership. I mean, that is fact. That wasn't fact back then. I mean, there was a very ambitious ownership um, and they did have money, but it wasn't the same kind of, you know, it wasn't the same kind of thing at that point. They were, you know, they did go on to, to break transfer records as Newcastle grew and grew. But there was nothing there. You know, you knew that the the season before, the idea of going out of business was very, very real. And so I think, you know, maybe that's where that came from for me. Uh, You know, that has always come from that, no, no, I'm I'm anticipating the first defeat. So it wasn't this thing. I don't think at that point it did feel like a bandwagon. I think by the point, you know, by the time 95, 96 comes along and Newcastle are up there, top of the table, I think everybody around the club at that point had that sense that, okay, we didn't do it this season. That was shit. That was really t- difficult, but we'll do it next season. You know, and so that was a very different feeling. Whereas back then, there was still that, no, no, this is this is, this is is gossamer thin, this. We've got to enjoy it while we can. Um, and and the celebration, as as Keegan sort of said in his book, you know, the, cele- the, the celebratory fact was it, it was all new. So it hadn't happened before, this feeling but we also knew how close we were to Jeopardy. Incredible. And 
Mark, there were several players you wanted to touch on this season. I mean, this is a season, again, what is now the Championship First Division, but this is a season of heroes. This is a season of absolute heroes. That's that we did the you did the David Kelly podcast yeah. on True Faith, and the the response was just you know ten thousand people listened to that podcast yeah. from Amazing. a guy who played for Newcastle United. What twenty years ago? Is it 30? 30, 30 years ago in the First Division? Yeah, that that probably symbolised to me who wasn't around for that as a supporter just how important he still is. And you know there was the flag display, which you know you uh, you had a well you had a very big hand in yeah. with war flags. You know, talk us through some of the players of that season and why they meant so much to fans. Well, David Kelly admitted himself, didn't he, that, uh, you know, everyone went up a, dif- a different level when Keegan arrived. Um, he made them feel special. It's, everyone's heard the stories, you know. Uh, you know, like what he said to Robert Lee, who I haven't even mentioned yet, who came in. He was a great signer, you know, and Keegan was good at that. He would look, he would always improve every single position. And, you know, Franz Carr did an okay job, but Robert Lee came in and took us to a different level. You know, and he was he was good at that around around the whole pitch. Um, Robert Robert Lee was was fantastic, head and shoulders, the best player that we had at the moment. But then you look at the likes of John Beresford. John Beresford ended up getting called up the England squad by the end of the season. Wow. Uh, you know, is it, is it a championship first division, whatever you want to call it, player? Uh, Venison was top notch. Had two good good fullbacks who could play football, tackle, but you know, link, link up with the midfielders. Um, you know, Liam O'Brien again, like. He's probably forgotten about in some ways how important he was for stopping up and then going up. Uh, probably because he got injured towards the end and, and Paul Bracewell came in. But again, Paul Bracewell, for me, was an upgrade on O'Brien because he was just he, he was phenomenal and he played a huge part in the, the first season back in the uh, in the top flight. But Lee Clark, Lee Clark for me, was just fun, absolutely phenomenal. And bear in mind, he was still only 19, 20-ish. He was, he was superb. He was our best player under Aussie. Um, I think George mentioned there the, the train around spots with, with Clarky and Benny Christensen. If I, if I remember r- rightly, he, um, he he did a dodgy ch- tackling one of Keegan's first train, so Keegan dropped him. He dropped him straight away. He says, you haven't got the mentality to play against Bristol City. And obviously we're back at Bristol City 3-0, then we had liftoff, you know. And um, But he, 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 Keegan could also also know who was chances. You know, we had Terry Wilson from Nottingham Forest on loan. He was a good player. For a good, good Nottingham Forest side, but he couldn't get a game, so he came to Newcastle on loan, and uh, you know he, he made it clear to Keegan, "I'll play me four games, but I'll not be stopping." And Keegan went, right, "See you later." Drop him straight away. Brought in David Roach. <laughs> you know, that's in Keegan. You, if you don't want to play for Newcastle, that's it. You, you, there's no point. But after Lee Clark's, um, you know, do- dodgy start, shall we say, under under Keegan's management, he was just he was just superb. And people take the piss a little bit out of Clark. He's saying. Uh, you know, jigs so he felt a piece in the box, but he had he had a lot more about his game than getting oh, in the box brilliant. and scoring goals. He was box to box, and George has mentioned again about the ninety five ninety six season. He adapted to be a sort of a holding midfield player, but still bombing on. Back then, he was you know linking everything up. Um, you know, you could go through the whole whole team. Um, you know, even bringing in the likes of Mark Robinson, who was unfortunate at the end. Uh, he was a great prospect from Barnsley, good fullback. And then uh, he had the idea for, for putting Venison as, as a centre half, really, um, but it didn't work out for him. But Scott Sellers, you know, he was an upgrade on an, on Kevin Sheedy, who was, had a fantastic career, but he was getting old. He had lost a yard of pace. Scott Sellers was still only twenty six, twenty seven. wasn't yeah. getting a game at Leeds, and he was he was brilliant and a proper proper footballer. Yeah, Sellers was a was a footballer. He really was. And you had Steve Howie at the back. Yeah, you know, and um, Keegan hadn't hadn't hadn't. Um, 
moved him from from centre forward to centre back, but it was cemented under under Keegan, and he was you know he was astonishingly good. And yeah, it was that combination of everything: the players that came in, lifted everybody, the players who were already there, you know, just rose to the challenge a bit, like what we've just seen. And um, Keegan Keegan was the was the sort of absolute pivotal figure in that because, as you said earlier. Beresford had had a chance to move from Portsmouth to to Liverpool. Rob Lee had the chance to go to Borough, who were in the Premier League, and you know there's the famous story about persuading him that Newcastle was closer to London than mm-hmm. than Middlesbrough, which I suppose he meant by train or whatever it you know it, it it was. But it was Keegan that really that set that set that going, and then it was also the mood that he set that he set sort of within the within the club that the ambition was boundless and. Um, you know the message to the players wasn't wasn't tactical. It wasn't detailed in those in those you know in those terms. He had a way that he wanted to play, but he made everybody feel better about themselves and told them to go out and show it, and they did. And it's you know it sounds so easy when you put it like that, but um, putting all those things together uh, at the same time, I mean, every one of those players was a hero. Everybody, everybody was. Everybody rose to the challenge. That was the that was the thing. You know what it is? Well, I haven't even mentioned Gavin Peacock as well. No, Peacock. What, what a great yeah. player Gavin yeah. Peacock was. He could play anyway. But Keegan, again, just give him the freedom. You know, what? I think they're saying something like uh, when he played for Liverpool and Shanky says, just, just run around and drop these little bombs or grenades or something, make yourself known. And he, apparently Keegan said exactly the same to, to Gavin Peacock and Peacock improved as a player. And the first half of that season, Peacock was probably our best player and our goal scorer. Um, and again, unfortunately, injury change his trajectory that season but uh, very important overall Brilliant Andy Cole comes in I don't know again this is why we're used to other the, the stars here how exciting was that signing was it exciting was he a known player did you know what was to come George when Andy Cole signs for Newcastle oh god that's that's difficult to, it's difficult to remember no I mean I think had he played it had he played it St- Against Newcastle earlier that season, he, a couple of weeks earlier before he signed, we played Bristol City away, yeah. and he tore Scott and right. Howie inside out. Keegan yeah. went, that's he, right, and that was again pretty sort of typical of, you know, of Keegan as well. It's like, oh, I'll have a bit of that, <laughs> and again, he just he just lifted everything. He just lifted everything again. The, you know, Peacock, Peacock wasn't a centre forward. He wasn't a number nine kind of character but Cole was he was a you know given the ball and he would well as the song as the song went gets the ball <laughs> scores a goal he missed a lot but he scored a lot and um it just you know it, at, at that at that vital moment it just lifted standards again and again you know I love that about the team as I said before my love for Les Ferdinand um will always be there but the way Newcastle played uh that season and the season after it was it was about movement and it was about finding space and it was little passes. It wasn't about whipping and crosses that Ferdinand would get on the end of. It was much more, it felt much more subtle to me. Um, uh, but Cole was, Cole was dynamite just in a different way. Yeah, I think, um, I remember where I was. I was in a chemistry class at school and the teacher told us, Newcastle have signed Andy Cole for 1.75 million. Never forget it. And we were <laughs> like, what? Newcastle don't spend 1.75 million. Um, you know, we won doubled our transfer record, which was five years previously. Um, 
But yeah, a little bit like George, I, I knew of him. He had scored, a, 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 you know, around 17, 18 goals for Bristol City that side, and a pretty poor Bristol City side. But um, I can't remember being totally excited about it, but wow, within a couple of weeks, you just knew straight yeah. away. And he, and he was an instant fan favourite. And you, you, in a way, you felt a little bit sorry for the likes of Peacock and Kelly, because all of a sudden, you, ha- you, you had Andy Cole having that song sang about him. Um, and the whole the whole team was built around Andy Cole. Um but I think oh, did he end up getting something like thirteen and thirteen, two hat ricks in that in that championship season? He was sort of like the icing on the cake and ah, oh, just 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 phenomenal. And and for me, along with Mr. Shearer, with nice poster on the wall there, along with Shearer, he makes my all time eleven, just ahead of Ferdinand, because again, going back to that two year period where where Cole was at the club, it was just a simple joy to watch him play. Um but yeah, and you know, I think Andy Cole, despite him coming out late, I've 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 spoken him at talkings and stuff and you know, I think he just couldn't get his head around the adulation, could he, George? You know that the whole fact that he was living, he was living in a in a goldfish bowl, and he, he could he couldn't get it, he couldn't he couldn't live with it. Um, and I think he was. I think there was. You know, the club, the club had no infrastructure back then. Yeah. It was still it was still growing, and I think he was. I think he was sent out to. I can't remember which it was a pit village in County Durham yeah. to live and all that kind of stuff, and there was no sort of, you know, the, uh, I think he fa- he sort of found that sort of stuff quite difficult as you would. Um, but I was just thinking back there when you're talking about, you know, how did you feel when they signed Andy Cole? Of course, there was no. I mean, if you supported Newcastle, then you would read about. If you supported Newcastle in the Championship, you would read about them in the local papers. You wouldn't read about them anywhere else. I mean, a very very occasionally, you might get a. You know, you might get a report in in one of the nationals, but rarely. And when the football stopped for the summer, so did reporting on football. And so you could go for weeks on end without seeing mention of your team in the paper, um, which is astonishing now when you think about it. And of course, there was no social media. There was no, you know, there was very little television coverage, and it certainly wasn't wall to wall like we've got now. So you only really saw the opposition players unless you were a total and utter nerd. And I don't know how you would kind of even managed to be that mm-hmm. you only saw those players either the, the very rare occasion they'd be on telly or when your team played them so it's not like you have this like vast database of knowledge like we like we see now when Newcastle are linked with a player you'll get you'll immediately get loads of, oh brilliant you know here's his highlights from league or whatever it's like that stuff just did not exist so it was only players that you'd heard of really who might have played in the top division and were joining Newcastle or you'd seen play because there just wasn't that other there wasn't that other side of it. You didn't see other footballers. So as we come to the end of this podcast, George, I'm I'm interested. How how big a role did this season play in, in your career? Did, did you did you start writing professionally about football at this time, or was that to come later? So it was the season that I started writing about football, and it was the more that I did that, the more I wanted to do that. I found that I had I had to kind of I mean obviously you got your emotion out on a on a weekend on a Saturday but I, I wanted to express myself and I think I've, I've often talked about Gascoigne being the first player that did that for me but just because what he did on the pitch was so extraordinary um that it was this like violent poetry and I wanted to I needed to kind of get some kind of poetry out as well but it was this season and being part of it and watching it every week and being pissed at the weekend and spending the whole time you know I was kind of rediscovering Newcastle and I was living in Newcastle and this brilliant, vibrant city that was just aflame at the weekend. I had to get it out somehow and writing writing for the mag was the way that I kind of did that. And so I suppose the more I did it, the more I thought, I wonder if there's something there. And yeah, a year, a year or so later, I then did a, a journalism course at Darlington and I then 
Um, at the end of that, I'd usual lazy twat, I hadn't done anything about it, but there was a note on the wall to do work experience at the Sunday Sun, and that's the local Sunday paper for those uh, who aren't, who aren't, who don't live in the city, um, not the not the tabloid, um, not the national tabloid, and I started doing uh, I started doing work experience, and within a few months that became a job, and within another few months I was back at the training ground, still open to fans, interviewing the players that I'd been watching, um, and yeah, ninety five, ninety six. I mean, my 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 first kind of full time gig was actually covering Sunderland under Mick Buxton. So that was kind of quite. I mean, that was a very different vibe to what was happening at Newcastle. But during the week, I would be going to the going to the training ground at Newcastle to do features and do interviews. And yeah, ninety five, ninety six. I was covering Newcastle in the in that season, and I, I I've forgotten all of it. I wish I could like remember. So tomorrow of that, but when Saturday came along, I was shitting myself. I was shitting myself because I didn't know what I was doing professionally, and I had the dead, you know, the deadlines to work to, and I was dictating copy over the phone because that's what we had to do back then. No laptops, you know, no internet, nothing like that. Um, but um, but yeah, it was very surreal to kind of go from to go from those seasons to pretty soon afterwards being, you know, writing writing about it, and then become because the you know because the uh, training ground was open back then. I would. I became friends with. I became friends with those footballers. I got to know those footballers. I got to know Lee Clark and Steve Watson. Steve Howie became the best man. You know, became my best man. I mean, I would go out drinking with him, and um, yeah. I mean, so it all started. I mean, it it started earlier when I first went to watch Newcastle. I guess, um, and you know, the same story as everybody else. When I was a kid, went with my stepdad Gordon, who took me for the first time. Um, and sort of stirred that, but it was this season that opened it all up for me. So I've got this season and Keegan to sort of thank for for that. Um, but and yeah, as a as a as a fan, I mean, I do I, I do I don't you know you don't want to be one of those people who say it was better in my day um, because that's that's you know that's that's kind of unfair. But what you know what I loved about now is that there is a replication of that feeling. What I would love is the is for the football to come close to it, you know, for it to be successful football, but just that headlong. We will beat you, football. We will beat you by being better than you, um, and if we don't beat you by being better than you, then we'll probably lose. <laughs> yeah. But you know, more often than not, they were better, and um, you know, and again, it was a it it. it it was pre-mobile phone, so at the same time as you had the team winning at the, on the weekend, you would have the team celebrating in the city, and so there was no separate. You know, there was no separation at the training ground. There was very little se- se- separation at the stadium, as you were saying, Mark. And then there was no separation after the match because everybody would be out. Everybody was out on the town, and um, you know that as as the as the team grew in the subsequent seasons, you would have that thing where you would get into a taxi you would get on the bus everybody had a story about a Newcastle player who'd been out seeing a Newcastle player being part of it and it was that level of intensity was ridiculous but it was also very very symptomatic of everybody being in it together and you know Newcastle was growing as a city was changing as a city was becoming you know was becoming different you know the old industry was going and it was becoming something else and football was at the forefront of that you know, it was, 
Newcastle became a party city, but Newcastle were a party team. I don't mean that, I don't mean drinking. They they played like a party. You wanted to be there and be part of it, and it was fucking fun. It was unbelievable. Um, and it's of course it's the bedrock on which everything is based now. I mean, Amanda Staveley wouldn't have come to St James's Park and fallen in love with Newcastle, to use her words, if Keegan hadn't got Newcastle in the Premier League, because that's what it's it's all based on this. It's all based on this version of the club. Um, you know, he saw the potential, he felt it, and um, yeah, there's been some pretty shitty, horrible years in the in the intervening time. But that's what the modern version. This is what the modern version of Newcastle stands on. Any closing comments, Mark? No, I think what George said is uh, absolutely perfect. And don't forget Keegan, when he was a player, when he left, when he retired, he had the vision then. He told the club, go get, you know, spend money, go back, you know, not, not bankrupt, but get yourselves into debt, go and buy players, go and progress. This side does not need to be relegated ever again, this football club. And then when uh, he came back for Kenny Wharton's testimony in, in 1989, the club on the brink of relegation, he come back for Kenny Wharton's testimony, he had a you know, a few harsh words to say. He said then, lovely new stand, Milburn stand had just been built. Lovely new stand, but air st- uh, stands don't win your football games. It, it sticks with you. And then he come back in 92 and he still had that vision. He hadn't lost his uh, love. He hadn't lost his passion. And Christ, you know, it was just a joy to go along with, with Kevin Keegan and that sort of, that four, five, six year period un- under his management. Um, but as, as was said at the start of the show, you know, that I'm with George, 92, 94, them two years were just absolutely incredible. Very, and very, sorry, well, go on for it. I mean, I could do this forever, but <laughs> to go back to that very start, the thing we didn't say, when he arrived at the club, when he came back as manager, he'd been out of football for eight, for eight years. He'd been living in Marbella, playing golf. He'd come back to this country um, just before then and didn't know what to do. But he, I mean, he, he says himself, he wouldn't have gone to any other club to be manager. He said if Liverpool had asked him, where obviously he'd been phenomenal, he wouldn't have gone. It was only Newcastle he'd have done it for. And um, so... That sense of new, it was all new to him. He didn't know the players in the championship. And so when you look back on that achievement, to get from the very bottom of the division to the top in the space of one season, not knowing effectively, you know, the players, the te- the teams, with a board that didn't really know what it was doing, that had come in. And I mean, so it was it was that sense of freshness was everywhere. There was like a naivety about, about us as a fan base because it had been so bad for so long. It's like, oh my God, what is it? You know, it was that sort of feeling. What is it that we're witnessing? And Keegan Keegan personified that because he had it himself. It was fresh to him too. You know, he hadn't managed a single match in his life before coming to Newcastle. I mean, it was incredible. It was incredible. It's ridiculous. stupid, really. If you tried to sort of, if you tried to, I, I don't know what the sort of obvious, I, I don't know if you can think of an example of, 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 of something modern, but it was... I mean, it was nonsense to base it on Keegan, but it worked. It worked perfectly, and everything about it was fresh. Everything about it. Brilliant. Well said. Well, thanks to Mark and George. What a what a lovely conversation to have sat here and witnessed. It was brilliant. I'm 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 very envious that I wasn't around in uh, in 1992 93 for that fantastic season. Thanks to you both. We'll be back with another True Faith Free podcast this time next week. Bye bye. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.